HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Alto Adige Wines, wines from the Italian Alps. For more information, visit altoadigewines.com. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. I recently traveled to northern Italy to visit the Alto Adige wine region, also known as Sud Tyrol or South Tyrol, near the Swiss and Austrian borders at the foothills of the Dolomites. The Alto Adige is one of the smallest wine-growing regions and has also become one of the country's top white wine regions. This unique alpine landscape is ironically kissed by the hot Mediterranean sun in the summer. Many of the vineyards are planted on hills and steep mountainside altitudes, producing fresh and aromatic wines. Along with the wine estates, there are over a dozen cooperatives successfully representing thousands of small wine growers in the region. The focus is towards quality, not quantity, working with over 20 varietals, including some of the best Pinot Bianco, Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon Blanc, Gewürztraminer, Schiava, and Lagrine you will ever taste. We were based out of Bolzano, the largest city of South Tyrol and the capital. We visited, dined, and tasted wine with over a dozen wineries and cooperatives. I will let the wine people of the Alto Adige tell their story. This is a two-part series, and this is part two. Um, on this episode, we'll be talking to Clemens Aloise Legator, proprietor Aloise Legator Estate, Werner Waldboth, Abatia de Novicello, and Judith Unterholzner, Gumpoff. I'd like to thank the EU. This campaign was financed by EU Regulation 1308-2013. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. We are in the Alto Adige region in northern Italy, also known as Zutro, Tyrol. We'll be touring the entire region and speaking with different wineries. Our guest is Clemens 
Aloise Legator. Did I do Aloise right? Yeah, absolutely. You sure? Because yeah. <laughs> I've been screwing it up all week. Yeah, it's not, that <laughs> it's easy. not a good look for me. <laughs> I'm your host, but Sam it's... Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Clemens Aloise Legator is the proprietor of his family's Aloise Legator Winery. He is part of the sixth generation of this wine family, dating back to the early 1800s. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Clemens. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. All right, so first tell me, just so people know who the hell we're talking to and where, where, where are we in the Alto Adige? So we are in the very southern part of Alto Adige. Okay. It's a small, a very idyllic place called Magre. It's a very small town. The town is M-A-G-R-E, Magre. Correct, yeah. Okay. Uh, on the Dolomitic limestone here. Okay, we love limestone, Yeah. right? <laughs> um, all right, so let's get into you a little and then, you know, we'll get into the winery. Let's people... Let's let people understand who you are. So my understanding was you spent many years abroad before you came back to run the winery. Is that true? That's true, yeah. What were you doing? Were you wine-related, education, other pursuits? Both. Um, I started with actually sociology. Okay. Um, So starting in Zurich with sociology, and then I studied uh, it for three years. It's super, super studies. I learned a lot, especially sociology, uh, it's a philosophy good, about good society. Topic. It's a good topic. And, and good, I, I think right. also when running a winery, you deal with people and it's always a good, good. Uh, yeah, you, I learned a lot, I would say. But afterwards, I went to uh, Geisenheim, which is a viticulture school in Germany. Uh, I stayed there for a year and afterwards I went to Dijon, to Burgundy. So it was an exchange What in here. Dijon? A yeah. school or? A, a, a wine school, yes, the DNO. And then um, after a couple of months, I quit. Uh, the studies because quit in Dijon. Yes, because I didn't want to. Yeah, I I was eager to to dive into practical. Oh yeah, that uh, makes work sense. in a certain way, and so right. I. So continued. you wanted to get on with it in a certain way. Yes, yeah. I was. I was a little yeah. bit impatient about it. Not to screw it. off and do yeah. something else. And so I stayed there uh, working for Marquis d'Angerville, which is a small winery in in Bolnay, biodynamic winery, and it was super fun time. And then I went to New York. Um, so you went to New York. What year are we talking now? Just I think it was 2013, something like that. Okay, so almost four, yeah, something 10 like years that, ago. Yeah, nearly. Yeah. And there I, did some, I got some experiences uh, working on the wine market, selling wine. The business side. A little bit of the business side, yeah. Did you work for New York importers t- or distributors? Correct, yeah. or? I worked for Martin Scott, nowadays Winebow, uh, at the time. And um, yeah, I, I tried to Who understand. Who is now your... So that gave you a good perspective now for the business, for the family? Absolutely. And to understand also, I mean, New York is one of the most challenging, probably, wine wine market so uh, so it was a good good uh, learning curve did you so, enjoy new york or couldn't wait to get out or you no, it enjoyed. was just time to get back no, no, to the I family enjoyed, I enjoyed i enjoyed you new did, york yeah. a lot a lot yeah and so after new york i haven't been um, moving back actually i went back uh, to luxembourg and in luxembourg i um i worked in a in a food cooperative uh, for biodynamic um, products wow. to learn the whole aspect of uh, yeah biodynamics, so not only focusing on wine, but also to understand how vegetables or, or grain is produced and, and sold. And, and it was a very interesting experience, and I stayed there for two years. Tell me one thing. People now shift towards organic foods. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we'll talk about it a little, but in wine you have, you know, your regular farming, organics, biodynamics. On the food side, is biodynamics like wine where it's the next level from organics as far as how the growers grow the produce, fruits? Um, yes, actually it's always, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's actually, um, I would say it's diving a little bit deeper into the topic, into trying to create a closed organism, crying, trying to create diversity. Right. Um, and I same, think, yes, same, same thing, actually, yeah. yes. To uh, make the ecosystem, the, correct, yes. the, the that universe bigger. Yeah. Yeah, Permaculture, absolutely. whatever. All correct. Yeah. Um, that's interesting because you don't hear about that much. In food? Yeah, not, not as not, much as not I as would much like as to hear. wine, probably. In, yeah. And it depends where. It's in, in, um, Do you I, think more in Europe than in the States? I don't know. There's a, a certification which is called Demeter. I don't right. know how strong for Demeter, wine. also for food. It's oh, it the is same. The, it is the same. Yeah. So I don't know how strong Demeter food is in the U.S. Rare, in Germany, it's quite, quite strong. Rarely see it. So, rarely seen it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Italy and Germany is quite, quite important. Switzerland also important. So, yeah. All right. So two years there, then and what then, happened? And then I moved back. Then I felt uh, that uh, the time was right to, to come back to, to the family winery. And so I, I joined the family winery in, in 2015. And at that time... I I, uh, I split in a certain way with my father the diversities uh, the diversity the responsibilities, responsibilities yeah sorry and um, so I I was coming in joining the winery starting to get uh, responsible for the whole market side to and to have the possibility to travel around meet the, the importers who on the partners we are collaborating with and and slowly slowly I took over all the other um, um, I say. Um, Areas and responsibilities. Areas. So, from does my that father. include the vineyards and winemaking? Correct. That was a little bit later. So, 2018, I started with that. So, and tell uh, me your involvement with the winemaking. I mean, are you making the wine? Are you working with a winemaker? So, um, out in the field, you're working. So, with my father did the, uh, the, the cool thing um, before I joined the winery in 2015. Um, my uncle, who was the winemaker for I think 46 years, wow. you know, till 2013. Is that your he, dad's brother or your mom's no, brother? No, my um, my uncle. So is the husband of my dad's sister. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's your uncle. <laughs> and, yes, yes. Yeah. And um, so he retired in in uh, 2013 after 46 years, and so it was time to find a new winemakers team in a certain way. And so my father already, as I've been at that time already in Geisenheim at the viticulture school, he gave me the responsibility already that before joining the winery oh, to say, okay, great. you decided to come in in a couple of years. So it's your turn also to find your winemaker in a certain way. And uh, I was lucky enough that in this, just, I was just leaving uh, Geisenheim and I met Jo, my, uh, one of my best friends till today. And I asked him, uh, to join the winery in 2014. And before that, in 2013, there was already uh, our professor for biodynamic viticulture joining the winery um, in 2013, yeah. correct? And so I had the possibility to to, to, yeah, <clears throat> to contact them, to convince them to move uh, to Alto Alinger. And uh, so that's why 
I'm very much involved with winemaking. I'm very much involved with strategically winemaking, but I'm not daily on a right, daily basis. Have, I have also sometimes I need to travel in a certain did way. Did your so. friend have a background in wine, or he started? Yes, but no, when he, no, when he before he came to Geisenheim, he, yeah, no, he was, so he kind of grew into the field with yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was, of course, a huge advantage because we we met each other in Geisenheim, and during the studies we already uh, understood. Okay, we are thinking about wine in a similar way, and that's why. Of course, it was easy. Perfect. And also nowadays, it's very easy to trust him to know, okay, if I'm not there uh, doing the blends or, or thinking about wine, I absolutely know that he's, uh, he's doing the right thing. Um, so I want to ask you two things. The first is your relationship with your dad and is your sister involved? I have two sisters. They are two both sisters. involved, yes. They are both involved. Mm-hmm. I thought one was. So yeah, they I mean, all have different responsibilities? Uh, let's say in the wine business, you're right that my younger sister is more involved. Okay. But uh, we have, for example, uh, just this weekend, on the 1st of April, we have Suma. Suma is a wine fair with I, my I didn't know that. And then when I was coming out here just doing yeah. a little research, it's just an amazing lineup. It's, it's a, Saturday, it's, right? Yeah, it's on Saturday. Saturday is I Sunday, mean, yes. And so Christian Sheeta, I mean, all these correct, cool guys, correct. you know. And we, in, we invite always 100 wineries to our winery. How long have you been doing that? 20 years. That is right. awesome. So in our estates, we have approximately 100 wineries. And, uh, I mean, you need a lot of organization for that. And is that's it what, a, a salon, a fair, a walk-around yeah. tasting thing? Correct, yeah. And then everyone is in town partying for correct. two, three days. That's yeah, a fun correct, time, yeah. right? That's a fun time. For yeah. you, yeah. Especially for such a nice, All right, so back city. to your sister. So... Technically, what is she doing? And so the older sister, she's uh, organizing the, this important event. So she has an event, event agency, but she's organizing all those kind of major events what we have. And then, so she's less involved maybe in the wine business, but my smallest, uh, my younger sister is. So Helena is, um, she's responsible for certain markets. She's responsible for marketing. And she's also responsible for our restaurant, Paradise, which is here. Uh, we have a small lunch restaurant right. in Magrath. Is that where we are right Correct, now? Correct, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, your dad, does he step back? Does he still have a heavy hand? I mean, how, what's his involvement and how do you and him work? He did a super great job when, when, uh, yeah, when, uh, let's say, stepping back. He was always went hard, went, right? Not easy, I think. And because, you're saying I mean, he did a good job at it. Yes, already when, when 2014, first of all, yeah, he gave me the responsibility to find a new winemaker's team. So that's, that's. He left it to you. Absolutely. Because you so, have to live with it. Yeah. So also 2014, before I joined the winery, he said, look, when you, when you come in, I give you the whole, from day one, you get my office and you take over the responsibility. And then I said, no, that's, that's a super nice thing. And thank you very much. But um, as after living abroad for 10 years, I was not able anymore to do that because I, I had to get to meet uh, also the, the employees, to meet the partners, to meet, right. to know the wine, the vineyards right. again. So I, I, I said, okay, look, let's come on, let's divide the responsibilities. And that's why I had more time after the last four years to step in and, and to take over responsibilities. And he slowly, slowly stepped back or actually faster than, than probably many people would have done it. Uh, but he's still involved with our uh, Vintner partner. So we have small um, wine growers we're collaborating with. Um, and we started 2011 to trying to motivate them to organic and biodynamic Because those form. were his relationships. His as well. Some of them yeah, are I quite, mean, quite uh, yeah, yeah, long. Uh, we have long right. relationships he's, with he's those. He's worked partners. with them for years. Yeah. And so he had a very important role in trying to motivate those partners towards organic and biodynamic farming. And thanks to his role and thanks to his work, we are able to, after 
next year on, so with next upcoming winter 2024, we're going to have all 80 farmers converted to organic or biodynamic. And that's where he still has, uh, he does a lot. He's, he's leading still, that He's charge. leading that in a wow. certain way, yeah. So that's every other responsibility he passed, uh, he passed to us, but this is still something where we that's need him and we need his that's figure because I think convincing someone or motivating someone to organic biodynamic, you need a you need a lot of trust and you need to take their fear by that. That's the only thing. So people, farmers need to understand. It's not about the, the vine or the grape that needs to understand how to run organically or biodynamically. It's the farmer who needs to understand to look at the same vineyard from another perspective and instead of herbicides dealing with other things. No? And this is something what needs time and a lot of trust and a lot of where you need to take their fears that they're not losing yields in a certain way. So that's a long educational process, which we started 2011 and going to end it next year with everyone with being the success there. you hoped for, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, basically Absolutely. you succeeded at... Yes, and when we started with Biodynamics in 2004 in our vineyards, we never would have thought that even one, one of those partners we would be able to convince. And so now they are 80s. Not 80. to interrupt, but that's a good segue. I don't want you to spend a lot of time on it, mm -hmm. but you have to give me a little history of the winery. Yep. Like, obviously, 2004, but we have to go backwards when things started, the generational yep. thing. Don't spend a lot of time. No, Just okay. get me to current as quickly as you can. <laughs> so 18, uh, 1823, the winery was uh, founded. At that time, uh, still, we were trading wine. And then the first vineyards were planted in 1855. And so also the cellar and the winery was built in 1855. Uh, nine, my father joined in 74. Uh, my father was very important to also for the whole region to um, focus more on whites, focus on quality, because Altoanija still at that time was... So the shift over to whites, which everyone, yes, you know, correct. we're out here talking to everyone... Your dad was one of was the in key the middle player. of that whole Correct, yes. change because everyone tells you it was 70 percent, but Schiava or whatever. Not ninety in yeah. those days, ninety yeah. percent of Schiava, five percent of Lagrange, right. and maybe the rest was white. No, so keep going. But that's why what what he had to do, and then in the nineties he started uh, to uh, experiment with, with organic and biodynamic, and then two thousand four he was courage enough to to convert all our uh, 50 vineyard, uh, 50 hectares of vineyards, so 130 acres, to organic and uh, to biodynamic. Sorry. When did you get certified? Did you get certified? We got certified. The first vintage, I think, was 2007, because it always oh, pretty takes time, soon after three, four that. years, and so yes. Pretty soon. So that's you did a good job. You got me there quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I think people <laughs> understand. All right. So. I think it's fair to say that your grandmother kind of set this direction of yeah. the mindset with this organic or thoughtful gardening, mm -hmm. you know, and she kind of instilled in everyone, you could do this without, you know, screwing around or whatever. Um, so it, it's almost impossible not to sit here and talk to you and not talk about biodynamics. Mm -hmm. um, so you talked about your dad in 2004. I mean, what... What are like the inspirations or, you know, why him and not someone else? Why then? I mean, there had to be something that touched him that said, listen, the best way to do this is this direction. I mean, he, of course, got, he grew up with it in a certain way. As you said, my grandmother was uh, gardening her vegetable garden with this old ideas of farming 
pruning, lunar cycle, preparation, biodynamics. But it's a huge difference if you if you farm your garden, but a small garden biodynamically, or or 130 acres in a certain right. So, but he grew up, and when he joined in '74, he always had in mind, okay, one sooner or later, I would love to have all my vineyards biodynamically farmed. Just that in the '70s, as we as we talked uh, just five minutes ago. There were other things to do in Alto Anage, so stepping to towards quality, not quantity, towards white. So he had, uh, he gave himself a lot of patience, or he was a kind of patient to, to do first of these quality steps, and then in the 90s to start with uh, biodynamically farming, organically farming. But this was always in his head to to switch sooner or later. But his took, patience was important because to get yeah. there, you yeah. it takes yeah. naturally time. Yes, absolutely. Um, and there was another producer in Alto Anische, uh, Loaca, who um, who spell that for me. Loaker, so L O A C K E R was a um, winery. He was a winery, and yes. he was practicing. And he was starting already in the I can't remember, but I think in the 70s, 80s. So wow. he, even 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 um, a little bit earlier than we did. He already started to um, experiment and convert to biodynamic, yes. We have an expression called winging it, you know, where you do something without yeah. looking at a manual yeah. or whatever. Did your grandmother wing it or did was she looking at Steiner stuff or was she, What's did she of, just feel that this is the right thing or she was using some specific guidelines? Probably she was reading a little bit of Steiner, but Steiner, reading Steiner is so complicated <laughs> and so complex. So I think she hadn't had a lot of fun doing yeah, that. Like, so I think, but Steiner is also, he didn't invent the things completely new uh, from you. I these mean, practices. These practice lunar cycle or, uh, I mean... Of course, now it sounds very ex exotic and, and esoteric if we talk about a certain cosmical influence, but also the sun is a cosmical influence. And of course, the moon has a certain cosmic uh, sure. influence and an impact. Uh, if you look at the tides and what is in a plant, it's water going up and down. Of course, also the moon has a certain impact on, on a plant. No, And uh, back in the days, people used that knowledge. And this is something what was a little bit more forgotten about it. So it's those... Biodynamic is also a little bit based on those old traditions and knowledges which were actually... So let's talk about that. Normal. So in a sense, it's like this self-contained microcosm, right? Yes. Biodynamics? Mm, that doesn't need to be a microcosm. It can be also the whole planet, but why not? But, it can? Yeah. But in this world, we're talking about... Smaller ones, yeah. Yeah, but we're talking about the introduction of animals surrounding Correct. the vineyards. You know, yeah, I think we, I we mean, talk the, about a the healthy... The things that you do or had to do or introduced... I think we talk about healthy agriculture. And healthy agriculture is always based on diversity. And a good farmer 100 years ago was a farmer who created diversity because he knew that only through diversity is able to create fertility. And the only value or one of the most important values we have as farmers is in keeping and increasing fertility. That's what we need to think of. And what, what's, how do, can we do that? Increasing cover crops, using uh, using manure of animals. So what happened? I mean, where do you find in Napa or here in Altoanija or or if you go to Burgundy, where do you see a cow rare. grazing in the vin vineyards rare. or around it? Goats, sheep, whatever. Rare. Rare, no? Yeah. So where do you take your organic fertilizer? So it was obvious that all of a sudden you were forced to use chemical fertilizer to feed and 
feed your vines in a certain way, where you weren't focusing anymore on the soil on the whole circumstances in a certain way. And I think this is all about biodynamics, creating, destroying monoculture, increasing diversity in order to increase fertility to have a healthy agriculture. And I hope that maybe in 10, 15 years, we'll not even need to talk about biodynamic anymore, but if it's permaculture, if it's biodynamic, if it's organic. Not just here, I mean, in general, the whole valley, the, the, everywhere, yeah. I think diversity is key Fruits, to vegetables, healthy. vegetables, Correct. Everything. Diversity yeah. is key to healthy agriculture, and I think we only should think about a healthy agriculture. Where? And oh. that's why, sorry, that's why also for us, we are, we are having 25 cows grazing our vineyards. Um, we gain manure through those cows and we are able I've to seen increase. Great pictures. I mean, don't you have bulls with horns? Correct, yes. I mean, there's everything. And they're grazing up. there. And, and of course, thanks to them, we have our fertilizer back right. now. And with this... And don't you create your own compost, compost correct, yes. piles? Yeah. I mean, rows so of are, them, right? we are creating our own gold again. And that's fantastic. Right. No? Right. And because in you've special, introduced... Yes. And in a special agriculture where you normally deal with monoculture, you don't have that possibility anymore because you don't have cows. Right. So that's why I think this is trying to think back as a close organism. This right. is why, why biodynamic is so interesting. Um, when people talk about regenerative farming, is that part of bi biodynamics? Or within biodynamics, you also have to think about farming regeneratively and continue to do other things? Or is it built in? But I think biodynamic is a little bit more um, clear. Um, because there's also a certification guidelines behind it, there's a guideline behind it, there's a Rudolf Schein, the founder behind it, there's a philosophy behind it. But it's also, uh, in a certain sense, it's also a regenerative farming. Yes. Right, so it is. It's you're also practicing here, healthy agriculture. Right, that, right, yes. right. So yeah. you're, you're kind of there. Um, I think any normal person wouldn't argue with you that that's the right and the best thing to do. But some people may say, okay, that's great, but I like drinking your wines. What's the difference? What am I tasting? You know, you've, you've practiced and toiled over biodynamics. How does that affect the wine I'm drinking? Literally tasting the liquid. How, how do you describe that? I think one, I have to... Just, I mean, I know the answers, yeah. but I'm curious. But I think, I'm think, I think that... Wine is always, how can I say, multifactorial. So you have many reasons why certain things are happening. The biodynamic is not a magical stick that all of a sudden everything gets better or no, changes. No, I'm not implying that. But the but thing what, is, what does it? You know, or I think it, even if it's it a mindset, you, that's a good start. It helps you to open up horizon. That your horizon, you're you're changing your practice, your practices. You're changing approach. You're changing perspective and. And at the, at the very end, you're trying to fertilize your soil. You make your soil better. You make your soil healthier, fertile, more fertile in a certain way. And, and I think at the very end, opening up your mindset of increasing fertility, dealing with cows or, or sheep or whatever, also then in the, in the cellar, not using uh, in, um, added yeast, but indigenous yeast, not adding an enzymes, I think you create at the very end a wine with an incredible character. And I'm not saying that there are no, conve no conventional wines out there with, with uh, some fantastic characters. I absolutely not. But I think also here there are many things 
which are having an impact on how think and how make wine, but I think biodynamic helps open up yourself. Use words and, like there's more energy or it's more lively. I mean, I would or, I would say I that mean, that's many kind of built of many biodynamic wines are liveliest maybe because of because listen everyone you're going to talk to now says everything happens in the vineyard and by practicing bio by bringing good fruit in well you can destroy a lot in the cellar as well Well, no we didn't get there yet but let's (laughs) start with you know good fruit and all of that um so the biodynamic part yeah you know as you carry it in so let's talk about cellar practices so obviously you have this whole mindset when you get into the cellar you know, I, I'm guessing it's minimal intervention. Mm-hmm. You just said indigenous yeast. So we still use a little bit of sulfur. To be honest, I'm not courage I'm not enough. anti-sulfur guy. You know, you yeah, do not, what you I'm have not, to, right? I'm not, I mean, we minimize it, yes, but right. we still use it a little bit because, um, I, I, to be honest and to be, yeah, very honest, I'm not encouraged enough to to be completely Zero sure that the sulfur. wine is the wine is stable and the wine is the same, which goes out the cellar and arrives in New York, for example. Right. So I'm, I'm, we're still in a moment where we are, or in the phase where we're trying out to understand how we might be able to not use sulfur at all, but we're still not there yet. Um, also, the same thing is with filter. We still uh, filter very softly our wines. has also to do with stabilization and to getting more practice. I mean, we are very young. or just filter? We find sometimes with bentonite right. and then softly filter. But um, I think also here, I think we are a very young team. We uh, we still... You're still feeling... We still f- need to feel a little bit and to be 100% sure. But I'm definitely sure that sooner or later, I would love to be there to have all my wines unfiltered. Uh, because I think it's the same thing with, um, what you can see with apple juice. I think, I don't know how it was in the US, but in here 10 years ago, everyone was drinking clear apple juice. Now Still. if you drink a, a, a apple juice here in the area, it's, it's cloudy. It's, people it's, look for clear. I mean, I hear it's just like no. organic food. Because of people course, are, yeah. filtering it, you take also certain it's things pa- out. So I would love to get there, but I'm still not 100% to that sure that it's stable enough uh, right. without adding any other products. I mean, you could add also other products, <coughs> but that's not the purpose. So right. the only thing what we do is we uh, yeah, filter softly the wines and add a little bit of sulfur, yes. That's really it, right? That's actually it. Stainless oh, steel, all, all some oak. Yes, depends on the wines, yes. Right. Um, but also here, when using oak, it's less than 10% it's new oak, so the majority is. Oak is interesting for the structure, but not for the nose in a certain way. Um, I didn't cover this before, but we talked about it. Um, the family owns, what is it, about 55 hectares? Mm-hmm. And then you partner with other... 80 partners, yes. 80 partners, of which you just told me you are at the end of having them agree yes. to farm... Organically, organically or, bi- or biodynamic. Yes. So everyone will be organic so or biodynamic. From next year on, everyone will be organic or biodynamic farming. Yes. How correct. long did that take? Was that uh, you, we started in 2011? Right. With, with our so partners. he was literally wandering the earth of Alto Adige, convincing people. In a certain way. So yes, he's yes, done yes, yes, in a way, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. That, that's um, exciting. Listen, you and I could sit here and do a show on climate change for two hours. We're not doing that because it's about the winery and I want to talk to you about your wines. But you guys seem to be very tuned into climate change. And sitting with you during the tasting, I learned that your dad, even in, what was it, the 80s or 70s, you know, was sensitive to that. So 
a lot of your vineyards are high elevation, right? So what not are, even that high. So what are the things you could do, you know, without spending a whole show on climate change? Yeah. Think about different varietals, so which first, you're doing. First elevation. I think, yes, elevation is very interesting. That's a luck what we have in Alto Energy, what you probably don't have in other areas, no. but we can go go higher. And the highest vineyard is already on, I think, 4,000 feet nearly in Alto Energy, so quite high. So it's a huge range of different altitudes we can play with. And then there is uh, thinking of new grape varieties. And as you mentioned, my father in the 80s started to get interested in climate change, planting grape varieties from southern parts. Acertico. Acertico or Tanah, Vionier, Petit Monsant. So all these grape varieties. And then there's another important aspect. So the question is, what are we going to do with Pinot Grigio Gewürztraminer grape varieties that are maybe a little bit um, suffering more the, the heat and, and which are important and which are indigenous so to the area. They are planted, let's say, like this, and it so takes ages to replant something. So, so, so what, the question what, is, what can we do with those? Where grape are you at so, with that? I mean, what can you? So do here, or? for example, skin and stem contact is very important. So, for example, Pora Pinot Grigio, our most important Pinot Grigio, is a it's a blend of many different components. It's, a wine is always a sum of many different components, but the th most the three most important ones are. The one component which was directly pressed, one component which was kept on, whole, uh, on on skin contact for 15 hours. Which we tasted. Yes, and one was, for example, a component which was kept for eight months in contact with skins and stems. And the tannins from the skins and the stems, they help you in a certain way to increase the perception of freshness. So it's like giving them the salt. It's like in the kitchen when you, you salt, yeah, you add salt or you set lemon juice to a, to a dish in a certain way. Right. So it's very interesting. So naturally... You you increase you you don't increase the acidity, but you increase the perception of freshness in a certain way. The perception so of it. What's interesting is we're talking about climate change and outside. You're talking about inside. You're talking about how you you know introducing skin t contact or leaving it six to eight months on the leaf. Yeah. And now by blending it, you can. And those are reactions to climate change for that yes. varietal? For example, uh, for many varietals, and we try out many things, so also we did also try out with Chardonnay or, or Pinot Noir is also grape variety, also in Burgundy, it's, it's, it's nearly a must that you, that you keep certain um, grapes or must juices in contact with skins and stems. But I think especially here in our area for Pinot Grigio, it's quite important to use skin and stem contact. If we want to guarantee also in future a certain freshness, a certain verticality and tension to our wines. Right. Um, all right, so before we finish up, let's talk about the wines. Um, I'm not positive of this, but I understand you have three levels. Mm -hmm. Is it three? Three plus the comments who are wines So you have a classical around. grape varietal where you Correct. can do the most varietals and Correct. more accessible we're, we're wines. I'm not talking quality. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about the approach. Um, Composition. So it's so about that, in the classical tier, it's all about diversity. So we try to get the best expression for, for for Chardonnay using different parcels, different vintner parcels, different altitudes, different uh, soil types. So it's all about using the diversity to get the best expression of, let's say, Chardonnay. In the composition tier, it's all about those components. So it's like a. Um, yeah, someone who has already a certain experience with skin stem contact. Right, a knows. selection process where you'll recognize that correct. guy and yeah. you'll work. Yes. Is that partners and your vineyards? Correct, yes. Okay. So some of our biodynamic partners as well. And then in the highest tier, uh, we call them masterpieces, but not 
that because we are arrogant to say that these are the best <laughs> wines in the world, but it's like the approach of a master, you know, trying to optimize and uh, every single detail and to get every single detail, detail to perfection in a certain way. So it's a little bit the approach, the but, apprentice, the journeyman, and the master in a certain but way. But to, to the point of the master is the masterpiece line, is it all estate vineyards or uh, not necessarily? Yes, it's all estate. So it's everything under your full control and how you approach Correct, it and all yes. that. And then we were sitting here and I knew about this and it was nice to experience. There's a line Comet, yes, which is kind of fun as a little loose, but kind of an interesting, <laughs> you know, fun line. Tell yeah. me about that. Well, you know, we, it's, have, it's more serious than fun have, is my we, point. Yeah, it's actually quite serious because we have, we have many questions. And we, as I mentioned, we are a young team having questions and, and we need to find, and we That's want to find answers. That's your experimental line? That's our experimental line. We have every single year we make about 100, 120 experiments. Uh, an experiment can be an experiment with a new grape variety for the area, or give me, uh, tell me something contact. you're working on now. You know that. For example, this year we're gonna plant uh, um, Carignan Gris, Carignan Blanc, which is could be very interesting. <laughs> that for the future. You don't hear that around here. No, actually, no. And and so experiment can be grape varieties. Experiment can be skin stem contact. So also. As I mentioned before, Boro Pinot Grigio, which was kept on skins and stems for eight months, at the beginning was an experiment. Now it's a very important part of one of our most important ones. Does that always keep like climate change in the back of your mind? As like well, you're doing no, I mean, that because conditions be... are changing, climate is changing, so we also need to adapt and we need to understand better. No? And if we don't want to add acidity to our wines, we need to understand how can we leverage certain characteristics naturally. No? So that's why we need to experiment a lot. And comments are wines where we select every year between five to ten experiments, which we bottle and then we share with our partners. What kind of uh, output, like on one bottling is what, 300 cases? Ah, 300 bottles. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so 300 and bottles. Do or... they stay within the winery? Do they ever hit the market, no, no, no. the they mailing had, they list? Hit the they hit they the market. They hit the market, so mostly gastronomy, restaurants as well. So some of them are also in, in U.S. Uh, for example, this year in U.S., it's going to be a, a, a wine which is called Suma Tree. S-U-M-M-A, like the... S-O-U-M-A, oh, yes. Okay. And Su is, refers to Souvenir Gris, which is a resistant grape variety we experiment with, because I think also here we need to understand where to grow those new hybrids in a certain way which are having many advantages because you don't need to spray them, but you, we still need to understand how they react on certain vinification methods, certain terroirs. So this is all the idea of what we have here. Ma refers to mash, so it wasn't skin and sam for one and a half years. And tree refers to a vintage plants of three different vintages because ah. we, here we wanted to give it also a lot of time. So it's 18, 19, 20, for example. So these are experiments where we want to understand certain things. And yeah, we want to understand how to adapt to a, a changing environment do you do that with the best intentions and then you taste the wine and you go oh my god this sucks we have to yes, hide absolutely. this i mean so sometimes that's part of discovery and experiment yeah, absolutely so <laughs> many comments they're passing by our planet and you don't even see them so many experiments are right. so shitty that you don't right, right, right. want to see them that's the natural yeah. you know cycle yes, absolutely yeah. so you absolutely, can't yeah. get ahead without falling so the, behind sometimes, correct so the know. purpose of the comments <laughs> is not as we have in the masterpieces where we want to really optimize every little detail right. that's these are wines where we yeah. just want to go you've given and yourself we, that. sometimes we just forget them about three years in the cellar and then we rediscover them in a certain way hidden in the last angle all right last thing i'm asking everyone that and this is strictly from your perspective 
what makes um, the wines from the Alto Adige, Adige so special? Well, I think, I think we have a special, I think our uniqueness is our diversity. So dealing with... We're not talking just Legator, we're no, talking the yeah. region, right? So I think talking about geology, talking about altitude, this di vertical diversity as well. So having vineyards on 500 feet, having vineyards on 4,000 feet. But I think in general, I think it's this alpine touch what, what our wines have. So verticality, what touch do? What? freshness, tension, acidity. This is acidity as well. But yeah, uh, ripeness in a certain way, also structure, but also vertical structure. Right. I think Aldoanejo wines are wines where you are, where you want to have a second sip. Yes. I think uh, what frustrates me is the wines across the board are so good. Pick the ones that you like. It's just not enough people, you know, have access to them or know about them. And when they get them, because most of the wine critics love the wines. You know, yeah. it's not like, you know, so. All right. Um, we got to go. So uh, one, one, for example, one uh, good possibility to to get our wines is also VinConnect. So it's a partner that we've collaborated with. Is that an from. online thing? or That's an online thing, yeah. Okay, good. Um, so that's V-I-N-C-O-N-N-E-C-T? Correct. All right. I, I want to thank my guest, Clemens Aloise Legator from the family vineyard, Aloise Legator. Thank you for spending time with us and enlightening us. You are listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. We are in the Alto Adige region in northern Italy, also known as Zoo Tyrol. We'll be touring the entire region and speaking with different wineries. Our guest is Werner Walboth. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Werner Walboth does just about everything at Abbazia di Novicello, including sales. Werner, welcome to the Grape Nation podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, we just did a tasting here earlier, and this is a very unique place, and I want you to tell me two things. First of all, we are in the Alto Adige. Where are we in the Alto Adige? Where is Abbazia di Novicello? So we are in the northeast of Alto Adige, and the far north, actually. If you are looking uh, two miles, more or less, North wine growing is not uh, possible anymore. So we are right at the edge where wine growing finished. So, so. it's among the northernmost wine uh, regions. Right. All right. So you know we've been you know we've been touring around to a lot of wineries, tastings, meeting people. Um, this is a unique set up in a unique situation. I mean, this isn't, you know, a cantina and it's not a big winery or a small winery. It is Abbazia di Novacello. So tell me a little history, the background of this, and bring me to the current, you know, why there's a winery still here and, you know, what's going on here. We just walked through the church. Mm -hmm. So give me a little history. Keep it in the wine context. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Abbazia de Marcella was founded in 1142, so an 881 uh, years ago now. And <laughs> since the beginning, uh, we were 
active in the wine business because the Abbey is surrounding surrounded by um, by vineyards and actually the um, the beginnings of wine growing uh, in Altaji go back to Balizarcos right the, to this area because the oldest findings um, in in or uh, which were connected to to uh, the production of wine were right here uh, three miles south really? from the, from Novacell and therefore still today we know that here wine always has been grown and uh, us today the, the wineries are surrounded by vineyards we know uh, since ever here was wine and that makes us be one of the oldest wineries in, in, in Italy. How about the world? It's got to be up there too, right? Probably one of the oldest of the world, always with a continuous wine growing history, of course. So you said the winery was part of the monastery or the abbey um, to provide wine. Was it more for religious reasons or was it for uh, economic reasons to bring in revenue or to employ farmers? It was a mix between. So it was, uh, of course, uh, during the Holy Masses, they... Uh, they uh, needed some wine and therefore they had wine for the holy masses but uh, of course also the, the monks themselves consumed some wine then uh, it was for the employees we always had a lot of employee and we found some documents that uh, every single employee and uh, it was in the 18th century had the right to uh, more or less four liters of wine which is more than a gallon of wine a day <laughs> for each employee uh, and then it was quite Wait, did you say a gallon a day? A day, a day. A day. Say four liters a day, a day, more than a gallon a day. Wow. Yeah. And um, and then um, we had a lot of tourists here as well. So the, the monastery itself is in a very strategic place. Uh, it was founded in this place because they wanted that people who comes from Central Europe and was go, which was going towards Rome and Rome then uh, always has been a political, religious and cultural center had to pass by here and a lot of them stopped by here. And so a lot of the wine which was produced was consumed or all the wine which was produced was consumed directly here in the monastery and it was a good business for the monastery as well. Makes sense. Um, let's talk about that. Um, as far as the fact that we're in a monastery and a whole complex, it is a winery. Um, is it fair to say you focus primarily on white wines? Focus, not exclusive. We are, uh, focusing primarily on white wine because we are here in the area. As I said, we're in not far northwest. Altitude, in, uh, best for in, whites. Right, yeah. And therefore, here in Wally Zarco, we have 98% white wines. And therefore, uh, surrounding or in the surroundings of the, the Abbey, there's just white wines. Right. So tell me, that's a good segue. Tell me about surroundings. So this is a winery. Obviously, you're making wines from grapes, from farmers around the area. How does that work? Um, they're close in proximity to the Abbey and, you know, it'll spread out. Are they partners? Does the church own the property? Is it contractual with farmers? How does, how does the source get to the winery, which is the grapes? Well, we do, uh, actually own some vineyards. You do? So yeah, the winery itself or the monastery itself does own, uh, 
more or less 55 acres of significant. vineyards. Yeah, that's what we do own. But actually, most of these vineyards are further south uh, in Bolzano and Appiano area, and there we to produce red wines. Right. Because the, the monks already uh, 400 years ago understood that Balizark is not suited for red wines. And therefore, they bought some vineyards further south. All the way back then. All the way back Because they back wanted then. red wines. Because then they said that the, um, the red wine from Balizarco is not good for healthiness because it's too <laughs> acid. And therefore, they bought vineyards further south. And so today, here in Balizarco, in the surroundings of the Abbey, we do own only a 15 acres, more or less. Uh, but as I said first, white wine is more important for us than red. And therefore, all the rest of the white wine, we are... Um, uh, making with grapes, grapes we are buying from farmers from the surroundings. So there are some 60 farmers here in the surroundings, which uh, 60 years ago, so 60 and 60, um, decided to found a cooperative. Cooperatives are quite common in Altadice. Yes. And also the farmers here in the surroundings decided to found a cooperative. But in difference to the others, they decided not to build up a winery, but to sell the grapes to an existing winery. And so in 1962, there started a collaboration with, with, between the 60 farmers, which are in a cooperative, and Abbazia de Novacella. And still today, we are buying the grapes from these farmers, from Do, this cooperative. So are they producing grapes exclusively for you? Exclusively, <coughs> yeah. They so have basically, some, you're their client. Yeah, the contract they, with them right. says they have to sell all the grapes to Abbazia Novacella, and on the other side, we have to take all the grapes from them. So we are not allowed to say, no, we don't right. want to, this year You've we don't want. You've committed to them. Yeah. Um, and the proximity of those farmers are in this area, uh, a peripheral around the uh, periphery around yeah, the winery? Like uh, six or seven miles. Right. So Just, you know, relatively close, close and yeah. all of that. Um, tell me about this particular area, which a good chunk of the grapes come from. We've designated that they're whites. And we've said that, you know, you have vineyards here, you deal with, you know, partners within six miles. So what are we talking about elevation wise? Um, are we talking multiple exposures? Um, do the climates vary because of the exposures? Is there a difference in soils? How much diversity in all of that are we dealing with? Um, a lot of diversity and first of all, because of the altitude. So we are starting here uh, with uh, the, the lowest vineyards at elevations of something about 2,000 feet. Wow. And going up to 3,000 feet more or less. And above that, viticulture is not possible anymore. So because it's getting really? too, um, too cool. And this, has, this altitude has a high impact on the on the acidity in wines and the sugar level, of course, as well, but also on the grape varieties. And therefore, we are, depending on the altitudes, we are selecting the grape varieties we are cultivating. And in general, here in Valizarco, we have completely different grape varieties from the rest of Alta Adige. So in Alta Adige, we have... So let's talk about that and let's get to the obvious one specifically. Um, it's an important part of your identity, important part of your sales, and that is the grape kerner, K-E-R-N-E-R. -E -R. Right. Um, so that varietal, that grape does well in this environment, the altitude and the soils and all of that. Yeah, 
is um, because we were talking, you know, off air. You don't see it everywhere because you can't grow it everywhere. This is ideal, right? Right. Corna is um, son of Riesling, so it's a cross between Riesling and Schiava or Trellinger, and is a grape variety which is. Uh, when it was created, it was thought for areas like this, cool climate areas, and that's what Corona needs. He needs cool climate. And therefore, in other areas in Alto Adige, it would be too warm for growing Corona. But that's right, the, the best area for this grape variety. You have cool climate, you have fresh winds, so we have our, uh, winds coming from south or cool winds coming from north, and that's a thing. Perfect Corona, for the grape. Corona needs that, yeah. Uh, Do you know the way some people discuss Pinot Noir as a finicky, thin-skinned grape to grow? To grow, you yeah. ever hear that? Is Kerner an easy grape to grow? Very difficult. It, it is difficult. Yeah, because explain why. What's the, what are the difficulties? It's very vigorous, so it's it it it's growing a lot. It's growing very fast, and therefore it's a lot of work in the vineyards. Uh, and you have, and that's the problem why, for example, in Germany, Kerner never had a big success. Um, it um, brings normally very high yields, but in order to have a um, good quality in wine and some structure in wine, you have to reduce the yields by, by a lot as well. And therefore, Kerner is uh, a lot of work because you have to do a lot of leaf work because uh, there are a lot of leaves. You have to, to um, take away a lot of leaves. and you It's labor-intensive. Yeah, it's labor-intensive. And then, um, yeah, you have to be very careful to not have to high yields because then you have an instruction one. But if you have too low yields, you have too much sugar and too much alcohol. And so it's it's very complicated. But did you say it was fast growing or it's fast growing. Does it do you harvest it earlier or no it's, it, it's no the, the everything the, happens quickly. No it's not fast, it's growing a lot. It was maybe, right. Yeah, it's growing a lot. So the, the plant is growing a lot, not in terms of time fast, but very very uh right. You mean the the, the plant? The plant. plant. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get that now. Um, how important is it to uh, to the winery? I mean, it represents a significant portion of your wine sales, a specific varietal, right? Yeah, it's it's uh, has become uh, almost twenty five percent of the production. So every uh, four bottle uh, we are making is is Kerner, and that's that's quite important because if you're Thinking back, we started the first bottle of Corona was sold in 1992. Uh, so it's a that was 30, it. Yeah, it's a thirty-year history. And has demand impressive. outstripped production? I mean, are are people buying more than you're growing? Or I mean, that's a good thing. Yeah, of course, it was. Um, did did so you plant more Kerner through the years? We or? did plant a lot. So when Kerner first came to our area, it was in the 1960s, um, it was, um, it was the, the farmers forcing to, um, to, um, to plant it because it has a high frost resistance. And so the risk for the farmer was lower because back then in the 1980s, uh, we had uh, a lot of years with very strong winter frost. And for example, 1981 was a year where almost 75% of the wines in the whole area died. Really? Yeah, but Colonel did it. Colonel did survive. And therefore, uh, it was the farmer 
focusing on that or aim they were aimed to to, to plant kernel but then starting from maybe uh, 2000 or late 90s um, the the market we as a winery saw that the market reacts very in a very positive way to this grape variety and there was a big request and so we were forcing the farmers to um, to plant kernel and and so it was a very fast story of success yeah and and you almost unique to uh uh di Novicella, I mean, because it plays such an important role. Yeah. I have a funny story. I was in New York. It had to be 15 years ago, which is a while back. And I was downtown in Soho, Tribeca, which is a hip neighborhood. And my wife and I were walking around, and there was a cool-looking wine store. So I said to her, let me just go in there, and I want to look around. And a woman owned it, and she was really cool you know, what are you looking for? Can I help you? I said, I just want to see what you have. And then after walking around for five, 10 minutes, I said, listen, I, the selection's amazing. <clears throat> Suggest something for me to take home, you know, something fun. And, and she gave me the Kerner, the Abati de Novicella Kerner. And I'm talking 15 years ago. I mean, she said, well, this is an interesting winery and it's an unusual grape. I, I mean, she nailed it. You would hope somebody today would do that. And here's somebody, you know, that was a way ahead of the curve. So I drank it and I'm like, it, it was relatively inexpensive or, or good value. Let me put it that way. So since then, I've been drinking it, you know, in the summer, I'll buy eight bottles and put it out. You know, it's a great wine that way. Um, I, I hope more people discover it that, you know, that's why we're talking about it. Um, you mentioned before, and tell me again, um, the whites are an important part of the winery and thrive well in the higher elevations. But the winery many, many years ago committed to lower altitudes, like in Bolzano, um, to grow reds. Right. But not recently. I mean, walk me through that again. No, it was in actually starting from 1623. Oh, that far back. Yeah. Uh, 1623, um, the, the abbot at that time, because it still being uh, a monastery and it was then, uh, decided to buy vineyards in Bolzano. And um, it was right in the center of Bolzano. It's called Maria Heim, this area, which today is still being part of, um, of the, or we still have a vineyard there, but it's more or less um, two and a half, um, or three, uh, no, five acres more or less today. Uh, Is it left. surrounded by just urban it's, growth yeah, and everything? After World War uh, One, Bolzano was growing a lot, and our vineyards, which were uh, back then some 15 acres, um, became smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so in 1938... Why did they become smaller? You because sold it, them off? We or? sold them, yeah, because the city there itself... Was an op- did you sell them and made good money, or you were forced we, to sell? Then uh, vineyard, the the, the price so cheap. for it was so cheap. It was, and and you have to imagine it was all very political. So sure. uh, there was some kind of Italianization uh, here, and um, Mussolini wanted to have a big Bolzano city, and so he made uh, created the city, and where the vineyards were, they they put houses. And so he had no patience for the vineyard. He had no patience so, for those vineyards. So Bolzano is sort of a dream or a goal, it was a goal of uh, Mussolini? He wanted to build this little cosmopolitan center? Of course, because it was uh, a German-speaking 
area in Italy, and he wanted to Italianize it, and so he right. built the houses for that, Italians which are coming from the that, south. That's the storyline. Story. Yeah, I should have known that, but <laughs> you know, it's so evident now. Um, all right, so let's talk about farming practices, seller practices, you know, what you guys are doing. Um, <clears throat> talk to me about in the farms. You deal with, you know, 600 part, 60 partner wineries and your your vineyards here. I, I mean, how do you farm? I mean, do you farm thoughtfully? Do you farm organic, near organic? Do you do a lot of treatments? I mean, how, how would you describe those yeah, practices? Of course, uh, we are not organic. It's It would be quite difficult with 60 farmers. So that makes it um, even right. more difficult because then you can say, okay, now I want to be organic and the next year or after three years, you are organic. If we are starting the process, we have to do it with 60 farmers and we have to convince. So that being said, because that's legitimate, yeah. you know, it's a hard thing to control because you sort of have to be certified on each one. Yeah. What are they doing? I mean, are, are they... Are, is it good practices per se? Yeah, we have a... Um, Do you create guidelines for your farmers we and creating, your own farms? We have uh, a guideline, so a guideline where um, where we are, are um, giving the rules uh, how they have to work. Of course, we uh, are looking to... to do it as sustainable as possible, and we are working uh, towards a uh, sustainable certification as well uh, within the next uh, three, um, hopefully not even years. Um, and yeah, we always, as one would says, we are here for a very long time. So it's it's eight hundred eight years. And these are family vineyards are, too. I yeah, mean, these... and therefore we are saying sustainability is part but of these, our DNA. These farmers their kids are running through the vineyards yeah. you know you don't want to spray them with herbicides of and course and i think that the young generation is even more, more open the, the promise is even more with that generation right, right? Yeah. um so you practice sustainable cultivation co2 neutral or those things we that are, yeah we are <clears> actually um, as a winery, we are, or as a monastery, we are uh, CO neutral since uh, 1992. And that's dates back to a time when nobody was talking about CO neutral. Is that like the first or only that's monastery to be CO2 neutral? First, yeah, yeah, yeah. First, um, first wineries working towards that. And that's, um, yeah, that proves that uh, that's not a thing we are not thinking of, but uh, sustainability for us always has been very, very important and it still has. Uh, or still is. And you can get certified in sustainability one way or we, another, you yes, applied? Yes, we are. We are um, You're striving towards that? Yeah, we are, uh, as I said first, so we, within the next couple of years, we are uh, going towards a certification. So very few people argue that wine is really made in the vineyard. You know, if you practice the right practices... You know, you're not screwing around out there. You're going to have beautiful grapes and beautiful grapes make beautiful wines. But you do have to pull them off the vines and bring them into the cellar. Um, what's going on in the cellar? I mean, is it basically not heavy intervention? I mean, how would you describe? Of course, it's easier for a very, very tiny winery to um, to let just the nature work, uh, we are um, let's say you mean mid- like indigenous yeast or yeah, things like that. Yeah, we are kind of mid-sized winery. 
making I um, 80, 70, 80,000 cases a year. And, and therefore, we have, um, we think we need to give some, some kind of uh, quality guarantee to our, um, our consumers as well. And therefore, we are, yeah, doing, um, doing tests or experiments with natural yeasts, but normally we are working with uh, just industrial yeast just right. to, to have this, um, to sleep better. Let's uh, call it like this. <laughs> right. Yeah, to know that your product, um, yeah. you know, I don't know if you can get to that at some point or, like you said, the scale is too big. We are. We, I, are, I uh, we um, actually last year uh, we started to, to say, hey, let's let's try it with with uh, a few casks to not uh, put any any. So you're always uh, experimenting. We are, we are always we? experimenting, and we are um, we are looking uh, what what uh, what could be the best for our wines at the end. Uh, that's also an important thing. We want to have a guarantee on the product and we sure. want to have a good wine and uh, we are doing the, the less possible to get as a result the uh, high quality product. Right. There shouldn't be much you have to do um, because if it's coming out of the field in good shape and you know, you're just making wine, you're not playing with it. Um, I didn't get a chance to see the winery part. But if I went into like the fermenting room, are we looking at stainless steel, concrete, wood? I mean, what are you primarily doing? Whites tend to be what? Stainless? Uh, whites, um, depending on the grape variety, aromatic grape varieties such as Kerner, 100% stainless steel because we want to work on the fruit, on the freshness, on the minerality, and therefore just stainless steel. Less aromatic grape varieties such as uh, Grunewald Liner or Pinot Grigio as well or Silvaner. Oh. Some wood, some uh, oak or acacia, but never more than uh, 30%. So 70% stainless steel, 30% um, big oak. Maybe in the selection line, a little bit of, um, of uh, brick, so small oak. Um, reds, fermentation, um, stainless steel mostly. We're starting, so we bought right uh, this year. So they came, they're pretty new. We can look at them later if you want to. We bought uh, some concrete tanks to do the fermentation of the of the selection rats in, in concrete as well. Uh, and um, yeah, then aging of the rats in uh, completely in wood. All of the rats. The reds that are, we talked about in Bolzano are trucked over we here are, after they're picked? Yeah, actually or you not don't have only, the facility there, do you? Um, actually, we have. Actually, we have not all of them uh, in Bolzano, but in 1938, uh, the, the the monastery bought some vineyards in Apiano. So today we have a um, uh, a 40 acres more or less of vineyards in Apiano, and there we have a second winery. So the the, the red wines, which are Schiava, Pinot Noir, and Lagrine, do actually ferment in a second winery oh, okay. down there, and only the aging then takes place here in this winery here in Bressanone, uh, in the north of uh, Alta Adige. That makes sense. So all the uh, the barriques and aging and stuff are in this facility. Yeah, yeah. Um, because we have just one winemaker, and of course, right. we want the winemaker wants to have all, everything under control, and so it's easier for him to handle just one one uh, one winery. Right. All right. Let's talk about the wines. 
you know, we taste it a lot. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there three lines of wines? There's a classic, pronounce it for me, Prepositus. Yeah, Prepositus. And is is there an Insolitus? Insolitus. Is that still... It's still so. Um, we so have to, you know what? Let's start from the bottom and yeah. tell me. You know, describe. I would guess classic is the most varietals and the expression. Tell me what right. the classic is. Yeah, classic is for us the um, the um, the wines where we have, um, or we are in the line where we're making the, the fresh and fruity style of wine. Um, drink now. Drink now or, or within the next five years. Right. I think every wine uh, which um, which we do produce uh, has an aging potential of uh, at least five years. So even the classic line, we have we have freshness in our wines. We have acidity. Uh, they are aging, not for uh, the classic, maybe not for ten or fifteen years, but at least. But four they five have years. the body and the bones have, to sit there three, four, five years and show nice bottle age, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, they have everything uh, you need. Actually, we we uh, were tasting some some wines from the 1970s, so 50 years old, oh. and then we did make uh, only the classic wine, and they were still being in a very very good shape. And uh, that proves that uh, every wine coming from this area can age. Even so, the on the classic line, there's about a dozen varietals, or uh, we are uh, yes, more or less. So, so it's somewhere eight around white wines, eight white wines we're making. Uh, Müller Turgar, Sylvaner, Körner, Riesling, Grünwaldliner, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Pinot Grigio, and Gewürztraminer. So eight varietals, and then uh, three varietals um, varieties um, for the reds, which is Chiava, Lagrine, and Pinot Noir. That's the, the classic. Then the prepositus, that's the selection. So uh, means. Um, Grapes coming from the best spots, so only the best spots, best exposures, uh, then uh, older wines, lower yields, and then also different treatment in the winery itself. So normally always longer aging on the fine leaves, so they are released only after one year, uh, some of them after two years, some of them after three years, some of them do wood aging. So that's the high quality line. And prepositus means um, abbot. So that's the Latin word for abbot. Oh. And the wines are dedicated to the, the abbots of the monastery, the right. 58 abbots from the founding. Are there the less skews in, in the propitus? How do you pronounce it? Pro prepositus. Prepositus. Yes. I'm sorry. There are less there are just, varietals than yeah, just eight. eight. So six, okay. six whites and right. it, two reds. The ones so that you want to concentrate of, yeah, on. It's kind of the, the pyramid of the of the of and our I guess quality. and then we have the insolidus which is a fun thing it's a f more or less a fun thing yeah um, we tasted some sparkling. That's we, not in solitude. That's in solitude as well. So because you're experimenting with varietals with sparkling, right? We are uh, in solitude was a, um, a line we introduced only in 2020, uh, and it was a little bit was uh, the idea to to show wines which we are producing uh, while we are focusing on the big issues of the future. Which is climate change? Which is um, which is um, orange wine? Orange wine, new wine styles. Low. The market wants orange wine, so let's yeah. experiment and try to let's, make it. Is that the thinking? Yeah, uh, or the thinking is with the orange wine was: uh, can we make an orange wine with which is recognizable as made from Abbazia Novacella? 
So not just an orange wine, that would be easy. But if I'm drinking it and comparing it to another wine, uh, orange wine, can I find out which is our style? And that was a, bit, uh, a little bit the, the, the idea we had behind. Then it's, we work with resistant grape varieties. So because pest management in the future will be a big issue. And therefore, we made a wine where we did no treatments in the vineyards. Uh, so you're experimenting also for climate change. We are, yeah. Well, we'll what varietals, at what altitudes, yeah, all right. that stuff. We, we did. A, so that's an important experiment a, a for you guys. Pinot, Pinot Blanc from high altitude because Pinot Blanc here, even if it's very common in Alta Adige, it's not common here in the surroundings of the Abbey um, because it's too cool for Pinot Blanc. And therefore, we tried to, to plant it right here. Um, and we wanted not just to plant it, but to um, to show our our consumers or people uh how the result was would be and and so it's it's partly a fun game the, the right. sparkling wine was a fun game uh we had fun to produce a sparkling wine and decided to do it with silvaner because that's very uh, typical for the area but also um a thing where we are uh trying to find out what the future could bring now some of those mark some of those wines hit the market they're available um we are or- no, actually. So <laughs> it's really not. more of an it's, in-house. It's uh, yeah, we are making uh, in between thousand and two thousand bottles. Okay, um, and we are uh, not repeating the experiments. So we are making the wine, and the next year on another to the next thing. And so yeah, there are a couple of bottles on the market, but uh, quite difficult. Very limited. Yeah. yeah. Um, in good times, do you sell most of the wine that you make? Like, let's not talk about COVID because that had an effect on anyone. But do you have trouble selling the wines that you make? No. Uh, we we um, You sell a high percentage of what you bottle. We uh, we sell all of what we bottle. So we have our problem like this year was right the opposite. So there were two months without wine. Really? <laughs> um, and a high percentage of that stays in Italy and even stays in this area, right? For tourism and the residents. How do do your sales, but maybe you're a little different because you're more prominent in the States. Tell me how that works out. Yeah, we are um, actually prominent in the States, but also in Italy, it's a little bit different to other wineries. Uh, Historically, Altadige in the the, um, 19... 80s, 70s, they produce mostly red wines for the German, um, Swiss, and, and Austrian market. But we here in Novacella, uh, we never had any reds because it's too cool for reds, and therefore we always produced white wines, and we had, we weren't able to sell them on those markets, and therefore already then we had a focus on the Italian market. And when Altadige then started, is quality um, or is the, 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 the started to focus more on the quality and more on the t- Italian market, we already were there. And therefore, still today, rest of Italy is way more important for us than the local market. So it's, uh, in terms of numbers, it's 10% local market. Then it's, it's 15% direct sales, which is mostly tourism, so in between Italians and Germans. Uh, and then it's the, 25 The, the direct-to-consumer... The tourism, it seems like you're doing as much or more than anyone on that. Yeah. 
It's you know, fifty. I think. I mean, more, does anyone do mailing lists around here? You know, where you send wine to people, or we are, but it's not. It's very not a big important. part. It's of, not a big part, right? We have our because in the states, shops. wine clubs yeah. and you know DTC mailing lists. You know, you get a listing once or twice a year. Um, I mean, respond to this. I mean, the wines are incredible. You know, these are some of the best expressions of white wines anywhere. The quality, the the diversity of, you know, like you could taste the classic line where it's fruit forward and fresh, or you can go to the next line, you know, where it, it's it's made a little differently. Um, I, you know, back in the U.S., just a lot of people I know don't know about these wines. <laughs> You know, there it's some restaurants have them, um, some retailers. I told you the story 15 years ago, a woman saw me about, you know, Kerner. Um, do you think there's an image problem? I mean, are you comfortable? I mean, you always want more people to know about it and sell more. But are you there or what can you do to make that happen? Of course, um, it it could be more. But on the other hand, we are quite a small winery. And uh, I said, Thirty first, the quantity is the quantity we have, right. and and can't today, sell more. So today we are selling some ten thousand cases on the U.S. market. So it's, which is a lot for uh, a lot for winery in Altadige. Yeah. I think we are. So you're one you're of the you're, mo- you're more of the model. You know, you're the example. You know where you you've gotten into the market, and because production is limited, it can only go so far. But do you feel, in general, I mean. It, it, it's one thing if the wines are okay. The wines are great. You know, anyone who's going to taste these wines, they're going to go, why didn't I know about these? You know, I've been drinking this crappy Pinot Grigio or Pinot Bianco forever. Um, you know, these are great. Um, I guess that's why we're here too, you know, to um, help you with that. Um, do you get into outside markets, you know, to promote wines and sell? Of course, we are doing – we are we – are- for the U.S. market, a strong focus. So uh, as a winery, we have a person actually based in New York, which is doing this work for Smart. us because it's it's uh, so important for us, this market. We are have someone on the ground. Yeah, there. we yeah. have somebody on the ground. And, and therefore, uh, also during the last couple of years, which for other wineries were, were quite difficult on the U.S. market, for us it was good. So we had uh, 2021, which has run awesome 2022 even better so we are um, yeah at the moment uh, the, the, the limits uh, on the market are kind of our our the, the, the quantity we can allocate to the market see when when i talk to people they think of italian wines they don't think of white you know, you're always going to be overshadowed by Tuscany, Chianti, Barolo, Barbaresco. Sicily is very hot now. You know, besides not knowing enough about the region, they don't even know that, you know, a lot of whites are made here. You know, Italy is a destination for white wines. That's, you know, that's what I hope, you know, gets out there. But I think it will. You know, the product speaks for itself so that organically will you know get out there um we have to wrap up but i want to ask you a question that i'm asking everybody and i want you to answer it in your you know in your words you know how you think about it and and the question is what makes the wines of the alto adige so special um most or one of the most important things is 
that Altaria is in general a guarantee for quality. So you can pick a bottle blind and it's that's what I've been matter. saying for the last five it's, minutes. People don't know that doesn't, though. Doesn't matter which producer you're grabbing a good bottle of wine. And that's a guarantee. And I think that's one uh, part of the story of success of Alto Adige. And then, of course, uh, fresh wines are very trendy. And we have the freshness in our wines. We have the fruit in our wines. And we have a wine style, I think, in general, which is very modern. And that's also part of the success. And um, we, the, the, the story in general um, the, of Alto Adige as a white wine area is very young. So we started to focus on white wines only 40 years ago. So it's yesterday. Right. Um, and therefore we are still pushing a lot, still working a lot. Everybody does and nobody is thinking, okay, we are fine now and we don't still have to work on it. And well, you said the wines are fresh. What makes... What makes a wine a good food wine? Um, yeah, the combination of, of everything. But uh, what's the, the word freshness. I'm looking for? Freshness and acidity. And acidity. There's yeah. great acidity yeah. in these wines, right? Yeah. So when you say what makes them so special, I mean you answered it and you didn't realize in five, seven different ways, which is a lot for a wine. Um, well, thank you for that. Um, we're going to wrap up. Um, I want to thank our guest, Werner Waldwolf. Um, he is here at Abbazia di Novicello, and we are where in the Val di Zarco? Val di Zarco. Val di Zarco, which is the northeastern part of um, the Alto Adige. Um, so thanks for joining us on The Grape Nation. Um, and we are on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks. Bye. Today's program was brought to you by Alto Adige Wines, wines from the Italian Alps. In the northeast corner of Italy, Alto Adige is one of the country's smallest wine-producing regions, yet one of its most multifaceted. Shaped by the Alps and Dolomites to the north, and Mediterranean influences from the south, Alto Adige produces an extraordinary range of top-quality wines from more than 20 different grape varieties, and wine growers tend vineyards at elevations ranging from 600 to 3,300 feet above sea level. Considered Italy's leading white wine region, look for Pinot Bianco, Sauvignon, Gewürztraminer, and Pinot Grigio. Don't miss out on indigenous reds like Schiava, also called Vernacci, and Lagrine, as well as Pinot Noir. For more information, visit www.altoadigewines.com. Campaign financed by EU Regulation 1308-2013. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. We are in the Alto Adige region in northern Italy, also known as Zutarol. We'll be touring the entire region and speaking with different wineries. Our guest, <coughs> excuse me, is Judith Unterholzner. Did I get the name right? Yes, Okay. you got it. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. So I'm here with Judith Unterholzer. She is a partner at Gumpoff Winery and basically has her hands in everything. And we'll get into that a little. Um, so Judith, welcome to the Grape Nation. Welcome and thanks for the invitation. Thank you for the invitation too, because previous to this interview, we did a fairly extensive tasting and I think we were all wowed by the wines. I think you could tell that. Thanks for the laurels. Right, so, so first of all, 
where are we in the Alto Adige? Where is Gumpaf? You know, we know the Alto Adige is in the northeastern border part of Italy, but within, where, where are we? Actually, Gumpov is, uh, geographically speaking, located in the area of Valle Isarco, which is Alto Adige and Italy's <coughs> northernmost wine-growing area. And it's a very <coughs> narrow, relatively long, to be germanly precise, 35-kilometer-long valley heading from Bolzano to the Austrian border, to the Brennero. And so it is, if... Uh, you consider the wine region, Alto Adige, which has the shape of a flex capacity, on the uh, left-hand branch. And actually, we are uh, about 10 minutes driving away from the provincial capital, from Bolzano. Right. Hence, we have a Mediterranean influence, but as we are just... Uh, on the food of the Dolomites, the famous UNESCO mountain chain, we get very fresh alpine winds right, in the night. has the influence on the wines, which we'll talk about. Um, Gumpov has interesting history. Um, and, you know, I might say that if you look at the sign on the winery, it says Marcus Prockheiser, uh, Prockweiser. Um, so we'll talk about why that, but give me a little history and tie all that in for me. Things have been going on around here for a little while. Yeah, actually our winery uh, has been existing as a such, respectively as a farm, which is also cultivating grapevines and vinifying the fruit directly in the family cellar, uh, has been existing at least since the 16th century. The oldest written document we have, which mentions active uh, grape growing and winemaking over here, is still today in the archive of a beautiful historical castle about 10 minutes driving towards the mountains. And up there, where back in the days <coughs> our landlords, the Counts of Fier, were living already in 15... The Counts of... Fier? The Counts of Fier. Fier is the... Spell it for me. F... F-I-E. F-I-E. It's the yeah. name of the village right. where we are located. And that noble family already in 1546 got wine deliveries <laughs> from Gumpov because actually you need to know the Valle di Zarco, which is nowadays uh, the main transit route, so the classic north-south um, route for... A lot of goods, but even travelers uh, heading towards Rome or more southern territories or also Italians going to Germany, Austria and Switzerland. Our valley, the bottom of the valley, back in the days in the area where we are, was not viable or walkable. So all the travelers... Uh, which were quite often heading to the Eternal City, and not only, they had to cross the mountains. And obviously they were walking or riding a horse, hence it was quite challenging and obviously also exhausting to do those trips. And due to that, they had to have sort of rest stations where they uh, could feed the animals, but also recharge their own batteries. And one of those uh, classic... Uh, 
today we would say a hotel, uh, was Brussels uh, uh, Castle, where the landlords were taking care of the travelers. Hence, they had quite a high demand of all the kinds of agricultural goods. And as that family uh, was uh, part of the big Habsburgian dynasty, the emperors of Austria-Hungary, uh, here in our territory, exactly the same natural taxation rule was applied, which existed also on the other side of the Alps. So 10% of all the kinds of products we had, from the eggs to the potatoes to the grain, veggies, but also fruit and obviously also wine because the guests were thirsty and not only right. those, the landlords too. Uh, we were delivering all those products, but apparently um, what uh, Gumpov supplied and our neighbors too was not enough to, uh, yeah, to feed and to give to drink to all the thirsty people. Right. So that family asked for additional deliveries and hence Gumpov was bringing uh, some more wine. And one of those supplying lists proves that we've been existing till then. In that period, the family, the Prakvisers, that's why Marcus Prakvisers is indicated on the label, which is my fiance's name. His family uh, has been living at Gumpov since 1802. So we have a little less history than the still farm itself, but years. still a couple of That's centuries. A long time. Yeah. And on. actually his grand-grandfather moved just from the next hill to the area over here because he was the second son of a family, hence he had not the right to get the heritage and to take over the family's farm. So he was looking for other land to acquire. And that's uh, how Simon Brackwieser in 1802 ended up over here. And when he got here, did he start planting vines along with other or the vines were here? The vines were here already. They were here. Okay. They were here. He added some though, okay. because the Pakvisers and Marcus's dad, like Marcus himself, they are very passionate about wine. And uh, so already the former generations, his uh, grandfather, so Marcus's grandfather, as well as his father, they were always making wine. But actually it was mostly cultivating uh, few rows of grapevines right. in order to vinify them primarily for friends and family, so for their private consumption. Right. And slowly, slowly though, as in those uh, centuries or in those decades, the main road to the Alpidisiusi, to the Schillier Plateau was going through our farm, a lot of uh, locals stopped by for a glass and they started appreciating the easy drinking lighthearted Schiava. They did. So they were demanding if it wouldn't be possible to acquire uh, also some wine, mostly in smaller barrels or in double liter or right. uh, bigger volumed uh, containers to bring back home and also to offer to their guests because in the late 70s, early 80s, in our, our area over here, slowly, slowly, even tourism started. And the local hosts mostly wanted to offer also local produce, the today so-called zero-mile right. sourcing, to the first guests coming and discovering the area. But actually for them, viticulture was always one of many 
income sources. As you need to know that Marcus's grandfather, as well as his dad, they both were survivors of one, respectively, both world wars. Mm. So they experienced, obviously, years when times here were extremely difficult. And when it was crucial to not depend or not depend too much on outsiders or on the availability right. of products on the market. Hence the idea and their main focus ever since was to grow and breed whatever possible at Gumpov in order not to depend on right. the market or the political situation surrounding good, us. That was good foresight. Absolutely. So technically uh, Marcus is to this property, not the family, yeah. third generation. Because you said his grandfather moved his over. His great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. So fourth generation. Okay, fourth. Okay, yeah. then his grandfather, yeah. then his dad, <clears throat> then him, tended this particular property and all of that. All right, so that, that gives us a little history. Now, I want to <clears throat> get into your head on this a little. Toward many wineries. I've toured many here. Yeah toward wineries all over the world um, and with many wines and winemakers, typical of the industry, there are not a lot of women <laughs> in top positions. Yeah. There are women in positions, but not a lot of women in top positions. Um, is that also true in the Alto Adige, where women are not as represented as they should be? It was for sure in the past, although it has been changing over the last decade or two, I would say. Also because a rather specific law we have in our agricultural context over here. Selling, the selling of the properties? Or? No, no, actually <coughs> we have the concept of the so-called closed farm. Which, which means what? Which was invented by the Habsburgans, and the idea was to prevent that the local farmers can no longer make a living from, it, from agriculture by having two small realities. Hence, over here, if you're handing over, or if you want to hand over a so-called closed farm, you're legally forced to give the whole block to just one child. You the don't others, want to break up. You are not We're allowed to break generally up. Generally small hectare. They don't want quarter hectare. You, you cannot even break okay. up a twenty hectare closed farm oh, really? if it is defined as a such. Okay. And obviously, the other sisters and brothers will get money from the lucky one uh, right. getting everything as a heritage. But nevertheless, that made sure over decades already, that agriculture still can be a primary income source for locals and that the farms are not abandoned because they find better jobs, allowing right. them to make more money and having more comfortable and more pleasant working hours in other industries. So that sort of seems to be the culture here. That's the culture because, here. Because you don't see a lot of selling, you see a lot of passing Absolutely. to family. Yeah. The laws have made it that it's not broken up. And, and I guess it's fair to say women are coming into the business through generational change. Yeah, also because in the past it was normal that even the youngest child was the first male one, all the 
bigger sisters were skipped. So not the yeah. first one. I mean, the one. mindset then was we're not letting a woman, yeah. Yeah. you know, run this or be part yeah. of it, you know, yeah. go, which is yeah. to my point. I mean, that's Absolutely. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so now more women are coming in generationally. Um, obviously, women are more capable than men, probably. Yeah. Um, so are you confident that in this region that you will see more women? I think so. Although in general, in Italy, not only in Altuadige, we still are uh, more old-fashioned than in other wine say, regions. Italy culturally yeah. is maybe a little chauvinistic yeah, or yeah, yeah. in that sense. So here's an uncomfortable question, and it doesn't involve you because you're your own winery, but to your knowledge, is there a woman cooperative president or chairman? Not in the wine world in Altamorija. Right. I am sure one day. Hopefully. But it should be by now. So it, um, it actually, till about a decade ago, there was even the mandatory rule. So it was politics who had to make it uh, an essential requirement that there has to be a female oh, uh, CEO or CEO, a female member in the board of directors, which didn't exist, but that was already a little revolution. Right. But, but it's, that was it's, a big deal. It's, it's getting better yeah. and we see it. it it's, it's such a, it's such a nothing thing now, but yeah. it's, it's still a big deal and it was a big deal, but you know, hopefully things will soften. Let's say a friend of yours daughter is in her early mid twenties and said, and you know, they're not part of a co-op or not even um, a vineyard owner and says to you, I'm so intrigued by the wine industry. I would love to get into it. What do you tell someone like that? Leave the Alto Adige, don't do it, you're a woman, or follow your dreams, obviously. Actually, I, I would answer follow your dreams also because especially amongst the small independent growers, so we so-called Vignaioli Independenti, respectively right. in German, the Freie Weinbaum, there are in percentage way more women than in the co-ops, respectively in the big tenutas. Because obviously there happens farms with just daughters, which should not have a negative connotation, but with just female, with, with, with a female generation to come, or even ladies uh, starting with a small vineyard, that do everything on their own, that right. went to uh, Geisenheim or to San Michele to study enology and viticulture. So women who are prepared, who are willing, and especially who have the passion to do. So it's absolutely not impossible that women can make it, even in Altradige, and we also have already the first examples. Right. Well, you're one of them, which is a nice thing. Um, so, uh, you know, I encourage that, you know, any person, any woman that wants to get into it, certainly there are opportunities here and in the business as you would approach, you know, anything. You do it, you know, with a level of passion and interest. Um, we walked the vineyards earlier. Um, so tell me about 
slopes, soils, climate, farming practices. I mean, you took me down the vineyards. It was a pretty steep <laughs> walk down here. I thought I was going to go tumbling. Um, I'll set you up, but the tasting room, your home, the cellars are all in one area and the important vineyards to you surround the property and the others are yeah. very close. Yeah. So tell me about this area. It's very steep, right? It is actually, uh, Marcus is known for being the master of the terraces in Valle because we have those uh, uh, very inclined sun-drenched sites. So the, the sloping like you see in the Rhone and other, you know, uh, Hermitage and all, it, Marcus likes that because of the way it sets up and the sun yeah. exposure? Yeah. We, uh, we have very steep and relatively high terraces. Just to give you some numbers, the average incline of our vineyards goes from 55 to 70%. To give uh, your followers an idea of what that means, probably most of the Americans have already seen the famous steep section of Lombard Street in San Francisco. Yes. The maximum steepness there is 37.5%. And you're telling me here it's what? Between 55 and 70. So you need to be quite exercised to work day by day in the vineyards, but at least you no longer need to go to gym. Right. If you do your right. working you'll hours. Get, you'll get your legs. So a lot of these vineyards, what we say, are west-facing? West-southwest-west-facing. What's the benefit of that exposure? The biggest benefit is the fact that the area here gets the hottest period of the day just before the sun sets behind the mountains towards west. So the afternoon sun really gives a lot of intense flavors to the fruit and obviously also helps to accumulate sugars in the weeks just before harvest. But we have a ripening process that goes relatively slowly due to the fact that as soon as uh, the sun goes down, we immediately get falling winds from the uh, high dolomite peaks in our back. Because you need to know that we are birdline just a few kilometers away from those mountains, which have uh, altitudes of even more than 3,000 meters. So up there, first and foremost, the environment is snow-covered for many months a year. And moreover, you always have cool uh, air masses. And due to the density difference, once the sun is away, we have those winds falling all the way down to the steep Isarco Valley. So you have a very ventilated right. area with these huge diurnal shifts. So, for example, last year and the vintage 2022 in Alto Adige was a quite warm one. Whilst harvesting, we had uh, during the day, uh, sort of as a standard, more than 25 degrees Celsius, even at the end of September. Wow. But once the sun set, temperatures drop all the way down uh, to 10 degrees or even less. It's crazy because I, I kind of stumbled on or learned that this area is one of the hottest areas in Italy, right? In the summer, yep. it's that Mediterranean. But for your sake, the way it's set up, it cools down at night, which is terrific. What about soils? I mean, your vineyards are 
fairly compact, you yep. know, they're not yep. spread out, contiguous. I know you have other stuff. Um, do the soils vary within the properties that we see or it's... They, they vary a little depending on the steepness, okay. obviously, of the plot, as well as on the wave on which you are. So uh, looking out of the window, obviously, who is listening to us just has to imagine. Right. But well, I'll, Maybe I'll post some pictures. It's, it's not a perfectly steep... Uh, mm, uh, how can I say a, a perfectly steep hill it, it has some waves it right. has some little hills inside it has bigger terraces right. and actually this specific profile was created by nature the ground soil of ours and that's also the rock in front of which we're sitting in our tasting room is a volcanic origin it's the so-called Bolzano quartz porphyry which can be found actually underneath most of uh, uh, Altuarija's vineyards, not just here, but even the ones of our colleagues in the region. Uh -huh. And actually this soil type was formed about 280 million years ago when the African tectonic plate directly crashed in the Euro-Asian one. And we are somehow on the borderline. So in that period, not only the Alps were folded, but also a lot of volcanic activity, hence eruptions, took place over here. And it took, obviously, millions of years uh, until that lava solidified, but it gives us this highly silicate-containing, very mineral-rich fundament, which, depending on where you are in Altuadige, can be covered by other material or not. In our case, we have here directly at the farm, mostly this volcanic stone in the ground, just underneath the grass, whilst two minutes driving in our Pinot Noir plot, for example, which is a bit more southward facing, there the glaciers during the ice age left moranic debris. Highly calcareous containing mount, uh, limestone, the so-called dolomite rock, which after is which great also for Pinot Noir, the mountains the are named. Right? Yeah, yeah, and it's that's a, why Marcus, once he uh, acquired that former grassland and did a soil analysis, respectively a soil profile, and so how the, the structure and the layers are, he decided to give it a trial with Pinot Noir. And, and too some, early to say. I mean, we tasted some Pinots. They tasted pretty good. Thank you. It, it, it took us a little to understand how to manage Pinot. Not in the sense that we think Pinot is the diva, as it is considered to be. Because we have to say, with that vineyard there, we do not need to invest more time and effort for the Pinot Noir than for the other varieties right. we have. Because where it is cultivated, it feels well and it is performing. Right. But we had to understand what the perfect moment for the picking of the fruit is. With the whites, we tend to be relatively late when harvesting because we want to have fully ripe, although not overripe flavors. With a pinot instead, once we started, and it's a planning from 2003, so the first experimental vintage was 05. At the beginning, we started probably a bit, a bit too late with the picking. Hence, the first vintages were slightly jammy. 
and wow. characterized by dried fruit. But once we tasted those wines with a certain age and a certain bottle of illusion done, we understood, no, Pinot Noir has to be amongst the first varieties which we're picking and for sure the very first one we, f we finish harvest. Ah. And this quicker time frame when harvesting now gives us this very crunchy but spicy Pinot style where the fact that we use quite a lot of whole cluster gives you this grip on the palate and the right. texture. That's, that's the winemaking yeah. options or parts that you yep. choose. You know, walking in and out of co-ops and wineries, I mean, I've been to places with as many as a dozen plus varietals, sometimes even more. Um, I knew this and it was made more clear when we did the tasting that you really focus on a handful, you know, maybe five, six. I mean, we'll talk about them for a second, but we just talked about Pinot Noir. We tasted some beautiful Pinot Biancos, um, the Sauvignons, um, the Schiava, which, you know, is important. Um, why focus on those varieties? Those are the best matches for the soil yep. and the conditions. Actually, those really are the varieties where, according to us and our palates, the terroir and the distinctive characteristic of our location here can be expressed the best. And we prefer doing of that handful of varieties. We have three whites and two reds, different interpretations showing right. various faces right. those varieties can have without adding many more because we prefer do well what we already learned and what we already can. And for us, it is also very important to learn or experience even more vintage by vintage what the strengths but also the weaknesses sure. of all our vineyards are. And only by taking notes, obviously, also of all the experiences and all the observations, we are able to build up our cultural package and uh, sharpen even more the profile of the wines we do. I guess it's a good time to talk about the fact that the wines are presented in, what is it, three different lines? Yep. Um, and, and let's talk about that, because you can take a varietal and Marcus can express it, you know, different ways. Yep. So you start with, how did you pronounce it again? Medieval? Medieval. Medieval is, how would you describe that as kind of a wider yep. level, an open level, and ent um, entry. I don't want to use any negative words, yep. like cheap or entry, yep. but in a sense, it's less costly and it's more of an entry. Yep. Actually, for us, the medieval wines, medieval is the Latin term for Middle Ages, underlining the historical reality which we have. And the medieval wines are uh, wines for which we use mostly the grapes from the youngest vineyards we have, as the idea is to make a very varietally typical fruit-driven and floral style that expresses what the variety stands for, obviously considering that it comes from Altradija respectively from our territory. So right. it's sort of a wine for daily consumption, uh, but idea, a, but a great expression of the variety. Yeah, um, very, very drinkable. 
and very drinkable. And also this alpine brightness, which they show really well, this brightness, freshness, acidity, acidity backbone that uh, gives you also an idea of uh, yeah, standing on a high mountain peak and enjoying the picturesque view on a beautiful fall day. So right. somehow this pureness and the vertical element of those wines, which are uh, totally vinified in stainless steel because we do not want to add aromas coming from the storage container. You want to retain the freshness. Yeah, absolutely. Keep, all right, so then we move along to your next level, which is higher quality. Yeah, Presolis. Uh, Presolis. Um, you know, we're all talking the same varietals in all yeah. these groups, but what, what's the difference with what you're doing there? You had mentioned um, you use younger vines for the other level. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to use the older vines, yep. which have more character. What else? Older vines, hence by nature, later yields, uh, later, lower yields, sorry. Normally harvested also later. Obviously the water goat has to be on our, our side, otherwise it gets tricky. And partially vinified in oak. So those are more our terroir wines where we really want to show what the element volcanic soil and this combination of Mediterranean climate, but still Alpine influences or vice versa, Alpine climate with Mediterranean influences makes with the varieties once they are grown over here. Right. And the oak actually is used, especially for structural reasons. So not to convey a specific aroma. And for us, it's especially important to ferment and mature part of the Pinot Bianco and the Sauvignon in oak because the oxidative atmosphere, without doing mallow though, gives you a creamier texture and also uh, higher aging potential. But you're leaving it on for a while, right? Actually, we leave most of our wines, even the fresh medieval ones, as long as possible on the gross lease. Obviously, the aromas need to be good and uh, the continuous tasting has to be convincing. But actually for us, the lees, respectively the yeast, is the mother of every single wine. And right. if the mother is good to you, right. why should you abandon her? That's right. So uh, lees are natural conservants. And if you have a good lees, it helps you to evolve the wine without using too much sulfites, without uh, continuously changing or over-controlling temperature in your cellar. So it really helps you in life, but obviously you, you need to right. treat your mother well. Right, of course. Um, and then there's a Renaissance line, which I guess is a special wine. Renaissance uh, is a very... Not all the wines are made yeah. every year. Yeah. Correct. Actually, Renaissance is made just of the three leading varietals we have, for specifically those varieties. Pinot Noir. Pinot Bianco Pinot and Bianco. Sauvignon. Right. And those are varieties our heart beats the most for, we have to say, where, where we think that the terroir here really is uh, extraordinary for them. And those varieties, and the Renaissance stands for the rediscovering what the potential of the area is, but right. also what the way of the vintners, because for us, Renaissance means it's the complete harmonious package. It's the soil, it's the climate, but it's also the decisions the vintner 
takes in the vineyards as well as in the cellar to make those particular wines. So, so could, could we cover that quickly? In the, in the um, vineyards, um, I guess you're practicing a traditional cultivation, yeah. right? Um, and people say, well, what is that? Is that organic? Is that biodynamic? You know, are you spraying? What, what is, how are you farming? What's traditional cultivation? How you do it here? So the technical term would be, we are conventional vintners. Uh, we have nevertheless a very sustainable, um, approach and we want to be as nature friendly as possible, which means for us that if a treatment is needed to protect the plant and to guarantee harvest, which at the end of the day is what we make a living from. That's a last uh, resort though. Yeah, we are, we are doing a treatment. At the moment, technically due to the steepness of the sites we have, but also the narrow terraces of ours, we can do treatments just with small uh, chain wheel machinery. So we are right now to slow to practice organic viticulture, although it would be a dream to us. And we were last winter, winter last December on a study trip visiting many producers, many friends of ours in Baden. They've already started using drones for the treatments. And Marcus uh, immediately uh, stated that he would absolutely be interested in volunteering okay. uh, for a first to trial, try because this for us would mean uh, much more security for the vineyards sure. we have, and also uh, a better life quality. Because for us, doing a treatment means minimum 20 hours on that little machine, which oh. is something you would never ever do no. once more than it is absolutely necessary for your vineyards. Right. So just right. to it's allow necessity. you to understand that we do treatments if necessary, but we are for sure not uh, having fun driving back and forth in the rows, spraying something right. not necessary. Right. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So always looking for innovation, what other people are doing, which is a great thing. All right, Judith, we have to wrap up. We've been talking for a while, but I've been asking everyone the same question at the end of the uh, talk. And the question is, what makes Alto Adige wines so special? For me, Alto Adige wines are unique because they uh, are wines that show the great symbiosis of Mediterranean influences and an alpine environment, and hence the or a context uh, and a terroir where you can do wines with savor and elegance. And that for me is what Alto Adige stands for as a living environment, but also in the glass, respectively in the bottle. Well said, and we're gonna end on that. So I wanna thank our guest, Judith Unterholzner. Judith is one of the proprietors at Gumpoff Winery. Um, Thank you for sharing your wines with us. Thank you for Thank the you. tour, of which I almost rolled down the hill. Um, so thank you to Judith. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network.
If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Leave a review if you like the podcast. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and on Twitter at BenRuby. You can always find us on both using the hashtag TheGrapeNation. We are on Facebook at the Grape Nation. Thank you to our guests from the Alto Adige region. Thank you to our engineer, Armin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. Also, the EU. This campaign was financed by EU Regulation 1308-2013. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.